1: Hello, I'm Katherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This time, our year is 1922, and our book is My Soul in Exile by Zabel Yassayan. I'll be speaking with Sally Foreman, who is a British writer and researcher living in Jerusalem. Uh, Sally gave me a brief and mysterious bio, and she also chose this brief and mysterious book. Uh, it's about 40 pages, and uh, though the author calls it a novel, um, It's the musings of a painter named Emma, um, who has returned to her father's house in Constantinople. It's set um, after the Young Turk Revolution, but before World War One. So it's not when she was writing it that she said. it. Um, She meets some friends. She talks to her old teacher. She thinks about the place of art and artists in the world. And then maybe two or three pages from the end, she falls in love. Um, So here's our conversation. All right. Sally, thank you so much for joining me here. Thank you for choosing this book. I had never heard of this author. um, And I loved this. And I, I really, really loved it. I don't think I ever would have read it if you hadn't suggested it. Um, I found it to be well i I guess honestly i I just am gonna ask you my question rather than talking about it too much first because but I just wanted to let you know that I really loved it. Um why did you choose it what What does it mean to you?
0: Well, first of all, I'm excited to be having a conversation about this book because uh when I was rereading it for for our discussion, I realized I have never spoken about it with anyone before. Wow. Um, yeah, and this book, I think more than anything else I've read, I would say I have a relationship with this text. Um, but I found it when I was visiting Yerevan for a weekend. Um, I bought it in the Armenian Genocide Memorial Museum shop. Um, oh, I wow. WSAM, she escaped the genocide in 1915. She got a tip-off that she was on a wanted list. So she left the country. Uh, But she's known among Armenians for um, her work collecting the testimonials of survivors uh, of that genocide and also a previous massacre in 1909. But I'd never heard of her and I didn't know what this book was when I picked it up. Like it's a slim volume um, of collected writings. Like it could be poetry. Yeah. And on the back, the blurb opens with these questions, which maybe I'll read.
1: Yeah, sure. I'm gonna end up wanting to read part of it too. I have I have some mark that I wanna to read too later.
0: So these are the questions that sort of like got me somehow in my guts. Uh, what is the experience of feeling like an exile in one's own land? How does the creative artist communicate inner thoughts to a seemingly uncaring public? Can a person remain true to herself and yet participate meaningfully in society? Is romantic love possible for an artist committed to her craft? So these questions, they, they kind of stimulated me at the time and they still do. And like for every distinct phase of my life since I first read this book, I have felt the urge at some point to reread it yeah uh, and I can remember the experience of rereading it. And uh, it's quite an active experience uh, engaging with this text I find. Um, like I'm always finding new connections between these by now quite familiar passages, um, finding like deeper meanings in the text and also elaborating on my own previous reflections, which are all scrawled on the in the margin. Yeah. Um so I'm really curious to hear what your experience of coming to it for the first time was because I can now barely remember how I how I received it when it was something completely alien to me. Well,
1: I feel really lucky that I'm going to get to hear your sort of long-term relationship thoughts about this text because um it's I was just looking up a list of symbolist writers to see, like, I was like, who is she in conversation with? Where does this fit into anything? Because it's so unlike anything I had read before. And there's like a few little wisps of, you know, of feeling like, oh, this is kind of like this and this is kind of like that. But um, one of the things that really struck me about it just right out of the gate is that it is... um, it's so joyful. It seems like um, this is actually a side of the 20th century that we basically never talk about on this podcast, which is the feeling that did come interleaved with the horrors that maybe things are getting better. You know, that there's something in this text that feels... Um, it, it, uh, Knowing that she, you know, obviously she escaped this genocide and then reported on it, like she was so politically engaged. And then she ended up being tortured to death, you know, like maybe 10 or 20 years after this book came out. Um, It's like those things have to cast a shadow on it to some degree. And then on the other hand, hmm, it, it reminded me of, um, the Audrey Lorde thing, the, um, the uses of the erotic. Have you read that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's this analogy she has uh, her use of the word erotic is, you know, it includes like sex or sexuality, but it also is like almost any kind of like really embodied pleasure, um, that sort of like builds, builds your soul, you know? Um, and she, she has this analogy of how margarine used to be sold, that um, it used to be like a block of white, you know, margarine. And then there would be a little capsule of yellow dye that you would mix. You'd sort of like break the capsule and mix it in and it would make the entire margarine block uh, butter colored. Right.
0: Wait, you mix it yourself?
1: Yeah, you would mix it yourself. So it would be sold
0: as like okay. the white block. So the, you have a choice whether to make it a more visually appealing. Like, does the yellow change the taste
1: or no, it doesn't change the taste, it just makes it more appealing. But so she's describing the white, <laughs> she's like describing this pleasure, sort of pleasure in living, pleasure in like being a person with you know, like a body and a character and a, a particularity, as you know, as the the erotic, as like that capsule of yellow that like even if it only happens once in a while, it um it goes, it uh, changes your entire life. And I had that feeling about this book where she's describing this kind of pleasure that makes me understand her whole life instead of it being like sort of a politically engaged and then ultimately horrifying slog. It's like, no, she was so, she was able to take so much pleasure in seeing people's faces, in doing her work, in like, being where she was. And, you know, I don't know. I and, and in, in hopefulness, in hope that things were actually gonna work out.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you experience it as joyful. I mean <laughs> did you not experience it as joyful? No, I, I I do. I mean what I experience in this book more than anything, it's a great sense of freedom. Like this is a woman who has absolutely located her desire. Um So sometimes I conflate in my mind when I'm talking about Yes, I am, and Emma, who is the narrator protagonist of this text, which Yes, I am, called it a novel, but it's 40 pages long. Yes, Um, yes. and has no plot, exactly. And it has no plot. And it's like generally recognized that Emma is an avatar for Yes, I am, and that Yes whole, like all of her works were very directly about her own experiences. Um, so sometimes I mix them up in my mind. But Emma, the narrator, she's a painter rather than a writer and this book is about her burning desire to make art and the sort of pain that this desire causes her because it's so huge and, and unrelenting and makes these demands on her. Um, so she's kind of like, and the title "My Soul in Exile" is it. It suggests that the the, the text is about um, being shut out from something, right? And there are uh, yeah, I was very surprised.
1: I I thought that the exile was going to be much more literal than it ended yeah. up. But the exile she's talking about, just for the listeners, um, is the way that she, as an artist feels like she's sort of a stranger in her own life because there's this part of her that's always frustrated and um, absent which is like the part of herself that wants to paint which is you know right if it's if it's the author it would be writing if it's the narrator it's painting
0: right so I like you get this kind of shock of kind of joy and and liberation almost when I read this yeah this time on this reading I very deliberately was trying to think about what is the exile that she's talking about and um I guess there's kind of three parts to that like she's she's living in the diaspora and she's returning to the land of her birth which is not the Armenian homeland right so yeah so there's the sort of the exile of being the The person who left who is returning and feeling sort of not quite able to connect with the place that was once her home. So I feel that as a source of pain running through the text. Then there's the sort of um, the national question and the Armenian political question um, which she feels which Emma seems to feel quite resistant to.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. She feels herself and her art being um, used in the service of nationalism when she comes home she's sort of overwhelmed at this feeling that her fellow Armenians see her as um, a voice for the national cause and there's part of her that wants to accept that and there's the larger part of her which is the artistic part of her that knows that she has to resist it to retain her own freedom yes and then there's the sort of third way in which she speaks about exile much more directly which is this idea that she like she talks about her fettered soul it's like a a cry of existential alienation she's always saying like who will understand me who will understand my work where will I find myself um so she there's there's part of her that just feels to me like she's in exile from herself well, um, yes
1: and no, because I think that it's like she has, and, and I think this is part of like the the feeling that her yearning has this degree of freedom and joyfulness in it, even if it's uncomfortable. Which is, she has a sense of what integration would look like. Like she's not so alienated that she that she kind of doesn't. It's, it's like it's just out of her reach. The feeling of being, and she does actually, I think. I don't have the quote right here, but like she does feel like when she is painting and she does have the ability to put, um, she sort of describes it as like her thoughts over many days into the painting that she can sort of consolidate and integrate and just like think over what she saw um, and put it into the painting. And it is that this narrator has a very, very visual awareness she's always talking about people's faces in a really interesting way and she gets so much joy out of people's faces like her old teacher's face and you know like meeting a woman that might be her friend and she's like oh i'm just going to like really really focus on her face and figure out like is she a person i want to be friends with and um uh calculating what kind of handshake she should do for the woman to you know show that she wants to be friends but is not going to be over eager and that kind of thing um, you, can, you can see from the narrative what kind of painter I think Emma probably would be, like a really humanistic painter, like a portrait artist, I think. But maybe she could also be, um, it could be uh, like more surrealist, but it's very, very interested in people.
0: Does yeah. That sound good to you? Yeah, I mean, she describes some of the scenes because there are quite a few scenes in the text where she's just penned herself in a room and she's standing in front of her paintings and she's becoming sort of feverish as she communes with her art.
1: Yes, yes. And I think Um, that's, that's like why I don't think that it's fully, it's not fully a story of exile. It's a story of like flickering between a state of exile and also just like, excitement and enthusiasm of art that is actually working quite well.
0: Yeah, and and it's, and it's in some sense giving her what she needs. Exactly. But I think there's one thing that she's not getting from it, which she's very aware of, and it is a true reflection of herself, a full reflection of what's in her soul. Like there's a passage that I love where she says, um, I would have liked to paint something else and i'm sure there was something else inside my soul like in my soul everything was life and gaiety and light yeah yeah my being was shrouded in mist and later in the text there's this metaphor that she comes up with where she plunges when she paints she's plunging her hand into a bag of gold dust oh, and yes. all that all that's in her palm when she pulls the hand out is something like the merest trace of gold dust in the imperceptible pores of her skin yeah. Um so there's something she's longing for and not quite connecting with. But those words are there. Like she she says herself, there there is joy in my soul. Like, this is what I'm chasing through my through my art, and you felt it, and I felt it. And that's why I found it very interesting to read the critical essay that mm-hmm. follows the text, where the he's an Armenian writer, male. Uh, Creekall Belledian, who writes about this piece, and he compares it to a pointillist painting or a watercolor. I'd be interested to know what you think about that. Um, he says it's strange, disconcerting, a provocation, and then he says, underpinning it all is a sense of malaise. Ah, <laughs> i, think I just really one of those points. Yeah, and I I reread this looking specifically for what he what he feels and and I and I could feel it a bit a bit more once I'd been conditioned to interesting interesting um, but his his the language he uses to describe it as a whole does not to me fit um like the idea of it being like a point of this painting or a watercolor suggests that it's something I know what he's trying to say that there's a sort of haziness she doesn't frame her scenes in a way that are clearly delineated um yeah I mean I just I right between the the color that she's putting on the page through her words and he's trying to to, to uh describe the way in which this is quite open textured um, and invites this kind of reader engagement. But to me, it's so much more vibrant than that, so much more certain. Like, her voice is quite calm and composed, but it's also quite strident. Like, she knows where she's trying to get to. Absolutely. And I mean, I, nothing will stop her.
1: In I think this, this is an oil painting. I, I just don't think this is a watercolor. It's the same thing you said. It's like, there's this certainty in it. And this, like there's like yearning and longing and there's something very very particular about the people that I don't it's like some structurally I could see some haziness but there's something
0: very unhazy about it also yeah her sense of where she's trying to get to and as you say her engagement with other people yeah feels very concrete very vivid um, you know he called it strange and disconcerting I, I sort of find the opposite but I don't know whether that's because I've read it so many times like to me it's, it's deeply comforting to to feel someone wrestling with these questions with such strength throughout like these questions are not defeating her they're not draining her her vitality stays at this pitch throughout the whole text which I Bradley. find the- strange or disconcerting it's it's like a current that is invigorating to tap into
1: I feel exactly how you feel about it I felt exactly like that and I'm not just going to repeat your words (laughs) but I just want to tell you I like strange and disconcerting is not at all how this hit me um it felt like I don't know just um I guess like you know one of the complaints that I sometimes have about, um, about texts about social change is if they just focus on the people that are least affected by that change. Um, like Norman Mailer is one of the episodes we did, and it's like he just is really, really concentrating on, um, you know, the people in the 1960s who are least affected by whatever social change is going on. Um, and to me, this is the opposite of that. It's really describing, like, I would say that in pretty much any group of people, women and other people whose rights might be curtailed based on gender are probably going to be the people who have the biggest swings of, like, you're free, no, now you're not. You have rights, now you don't, you know, like, the, that's, um, she has the most to lose and also the most to gain in in the changes that are going on around her.
0: Does that sound yeah. you? Yes. And like that's interesting. To what extent do you see her as someone who feels restricted by her sex?
1: I don't. I think she is. I um I I understand this, really. I understand how it would feel to just feel like I'm me. I know what I am. I know what I'm trying to do. I know what I'm about and then getting out into the world and finding that that I would not necessarily be perceived that way
0: is just like um
1: a and, huge affront, you know
0: yeah and I kind of feel like at no point does she have that jarring confrontation with her I, own sex or gender um what strikes me about this is how easily she sees herself as the heir to patriarchal traditions. I wouldn't go so far as to say she, she identifies with the men, but she definitely sees herself as included uh, in the traditions and, and the latest generation of this long line. Like she, First of all, she talks about she's returned to her father's house and when she's remembering her childhood, it's her father's voice. So clearly her childhood is framed by this kind of male gaze that is no mention of the mother. Um, and she places her paintings on top of her talented grandfather's wall murals. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very visual uh representation of this idea that she is the latest generation of this talented family of artists when she um her teacher um yeah. who's a character such a great character in this book uh-huh. um, he's sort of the person who helped her come of age as an artist I feel and she's always sought sort of his approval and there's one line you know there's there's a line where he says Emma you have fulfilled all of my hopes or you've met all of my expectations yeah um, so this idea that a man could have these expectations that could be fulfilled through a woman yeah, quite um, like striking.
1: Um, and there's no sense of, like, like, he's not a perv at all to her, you know? Like, there's no sense that he's, like, expecting any sexual favours or anything, you know, uh, <laughs> which is also striking in this context.
0: Yeah no she doesn't feel like she's had to make any sort of trade-offs in relation to her sex that have left her feeling compromised. When she hears that she remembers him teaching her she remembers him speaking in the classical Armenian language which Mm -hmm. she relates to as the language of of our forefathers Mm -hmm. and even though she can't understand those texts they're inaccessible to her because women only ever learned vernacular Armenian. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was when that started being taught in schools that women began to be educated.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know.
0: shut out by this tradition. Like, hearing these texts recited, she feels connected to it and part of it, even though she can't speak it. And maybe most strikingly, when she looks at her self-portrait near the end, she says, "Um, I hope people don't just see the young woman. I hope they see the longing for a fatherland, which is what I wanted to paint or thought I was painting yeah was I think like she the fatherland almost. I think
1: that you know in the um the uh documentary that we both watched um it's interesting that that's not actually the author's experience so the author was told as a young woman setting out to be a writer um it's going to be terrible like the there's going to be more thorns than laurels. She was
0: time. told that
1: by another woman. By another woman, yeah. And I think that um, that she may not have experienced that directly at this point, um, but it is interesting that she wasn't actually just told, "You're fine, go for it." You know,
0: um, I mean, she was. Encouraged by her father to go and pursue an artistic education at the Sorbonne. She yeah. was encouraged by her father to become a feminist and join this women's empowerment movement. And she did not like being a feminist. She did not like being a feminist. So yeah. there's that. Um, and she had a husband who, it seems, we don't know much about him, but it seems encouraged her to, like, gave her total freedom to pursue yeah. her career it is to travel away from the family when she needed to like nowhere in her writings have I found have I found sort of um, evidence of a sense of domestic restraint so yeah and so this this like um her identity as a feminist is also interesting because she did explicitly reject being part of that movement I don't know what Armenian feminism looked like at that time. But there are some, so at the back of this book, there are some of her non-fiction works, uh, including some essays on the women's movement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she sort of has a sort of tetchy, uh, tetchy attitude towards feminists. It's that sort of uh, um you are just aggravating. Men, you're you're aggravating society with your unrealistic demands. You're infighting. You're attacking each other. This is hopeless. Like this is not yeah. the direction moving. What women need to do is just accept that the woman's role is to to bear children, to nurture. Like this is what we're good at. This is how we complement men. Yeah. And, you know, like she's very insistent that women are not equal, meaning identical to. That she says we are of equal value. And the way we uh, we prove this value to society is just to, to go out in spheres beyond the domestic and um, do what we do best, i.e. nurture, in these other professions. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, uh, she was saying that's not feminism. And this uh, Beledian, who writes the critical essay says very high up in the essays well yes I was not a feminist. But it's interesting, comes across, I think, in that documentary that contemporary Armenian women have very much adopted her as a female role model. And I think it's kind of undeniable that she she was an example of a way to be a woman that was uh, very free and very empowered. How accessible that was to other women is
1: yeah, I'm interested in what what it looked like for her to have no domestic restraint, as you say, um, when she had children as well, because she did have children, and um, she did bring them along with her when she, um, you know, went to, to be, became a, a Soviet. Um, and I just don't know what that looked like you know, well, that's the other where were they physically when she was doing all of this reporting and so on.
0: Right, so that's that's another thing that's interesting about the period of days that she's narrating in My Soul in Exile. So this was published in 1922 and she would have been, what, in her 40s? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, And it's written about a period that happened sometime between 1909 and 1915. So she'd had her children. And her avatar, Emma, has no – there's no sense that she has a husband or children. I mean, definitely not, yeah. How to see self that she's created to – to explore her relationship with her art and the place where her soul is like straining for its freedom. She, she doesn't, it just doesn't factor in as, as part of that equation, um, which is very different to a lot of, uh, like if she were published now, I'm sure this would be classified as some kind of autofiction. And a lot of women's autofiction now is like trying to speak to this idea of having, competing responsibilities that the art has to emerge around and yeah. it's just not it's not what she wants to express
1: yeah it does seem like she's um she's very purposefully not engaging with it i actually it was part of the passage that i wanted to read um so the, the, thing, the point I want to make is part of this passage, so I'm going to read the whole passage because it also has one of her wonderful descriptions of a face. Um, this is the uh, the face of the man she falls in love with at the end of the story. Um Bay is the sort of man who could make his way through a crowd without attracting attention because only people of discernment can appreciate his unusual traits and especially the singularity of his face. Slender and somewhat taller than average, elegant but not affected, with finely chiseled features, blonde hair that has begun to go grey, and a pale complexion that perhaps owes its pallor to the bloodlessness typical of scions of old Constantinople families. He bears the marks of an aristocratic lassitude on his face. His small, honey-colored eyes, closely framed by the arch of his blonde eyebrows, are hidden behind gold-rimmed glasses. His forehead is broad and seems taut, but is unwrinkled, if It is so transparent at his temples that the network of his veins shows through. The somewhat too long oval of his face culminates in a little beard that is now shot through with gray. His aquiline nose with its delicate nostrils puts the crowning touch on that face, while under his little mustache, very fresh and clear-cut, flawlessly formed lips are smiling and supple, fostering a surprising feeling of intimacy and tenderness. It goes without saying that no woman of discernment could remain indifferent to that blend of delicacy and strength, that elegant simplicity and harmonious facility of expression. Yet something else commands my attention. I experienced an unaccustomed feeling of peace and inner harmony. It is as if all the unsettling voices in me have fallen silent, as if now the flighty impatience that makes my mind skip from one thing to another is letting me linger for a moment over a single impression that had ceased to exist it is as if I wanted to say constant wanted constantly to say, yes, that's it. Yes, that's exactly right. His words, his voice, his gestures, the smile on his lips, his pensive dreamy gaze, everything appears to correspond to my inner secret harmony, which it seems has only now just been revealed. Um, I love that passage. Uh, After this, after this happens, um, They talk, and he wants to look at her art, and he really, really likes her art. Um, He says, there's an intelligence and restrained power in your art. And then he says, it doesn't seem as if a woman's hand had held your brush, your portrait, for example. Only a man could have painted it that way. I find it difficult to formulate my feelings and thoughts at present, but this much is clear. Only a man is capable of painting a woman affected by her most tumultuous, most electrifying emotions. Right. um and she's into that
0: she agrees you really absolutely feel that this is music to her ears exactly she, i mean this this whole meeting is just like a long swoon right? yes and that, that strong desire to surrender The i, I wanted to say yes yes that's mm-hmm. it yes everything you say yes. um Yeah, I mean that was this was definitely a moment in the book where I thought, okay, no, she is, she has no trouble accepting her gender, her sex, or her sexuality. She does not chafe against these things in any way, which suggests that she does not feel confined by them or oppressed by them. And
1: yeah, but at the same time, like there, there is something in there where it's like she simultaneously feels very free and confident in um in this this uh, interaction with this man and also the way that he praises her that she also agrees with is you're you're as good as a man which is yeah. like you know there is something degrading about that to say that to a woman um that that she's just so signed off on that I was like, I was hoping that she was going to say something like, eh, don't love that, but
0: he is very beautiful. So, you know, but she, I, she, she is she's not happy, that person. She is not, not that She's happy to be a woman, not because she fits within the very limited at the time roles that women had, but because she has always, she's had such an exceptional experience of being a woman. And so I think her, Ability to enjoy her femininity is—it makes sense to me. Um, She also so something about reading this made me want to reread um, a room of one's own. A room of one's own, yeah, yeah, and it's like this is a room of one's own was published what about five years after this? Yeah, and. Um, it's the complete opposite insofar as Wolf is interrogating the various restraints on women making art. yeah yeah but I feel like yes I am slash Emma
1: mm-hmm.
0: is a, a sort of embodiment of the conclusions that Wolf comes to uh, for instance um this idea that women's work should not reproduce men's. Yeah. Like the this text, which uh the critic cannot quite fit into any genre, and I think doesn't fit into any genre, is sort of following these rules that Wolf suggests that that woman's writing needs to try to push into in order to find its way. She says that adapt the writing to the body. This is such an embodied language. Wolf says, I suspect the form will be short. Um More concentrated because of the lack of that protected space for a certain kind of thinking, the lack of all the institutions within which, you know, the whole purpose is to go and sit there and produce long pieces of thinking. All of Yes I Am's works were in this short form. Yeah, yeah, what is it that Wolf says? She said, Above all, you must illuminate your own soul. And like, this is exactly what Yes I Am is trying to do with this piece.
1: I really love that point. I think you're absolutely right about it. I think that one of the things that Wolf says also in there is about um, women who appear to be bent against themselves, uh, Mm -hmm. women who appear to be in some ways... Like not quite making the thing they intended to make because they're like their hands are shaking with rage or whatever it is. Um, I don't think those are the words she uses. Those are my words. Um, but she has an example of a passage from Jane Eyre that doesn't seem like it quite belongs in Jane's mind because it is essentially Charlotte Bronte um, expressing her own rage through uh, Jane as a mouthpiece. That's the the position that Wolf has. I don't know if I agree with it, but I think that this text does not seem like it is bent against itself. It feels like a very full, like she's really saying exactly how it feels to be her as a strong and free person who is full of hope and purpose and enthusiasm. And also really identifies, as you say, with the tradition that it really has almost completely excluded her, but but not completely.
0: Uh, what I was starting to say earlier, and I didn't I didn't want to talk about the rest of the book before we'd spoken about the text that we we wanted to discuss for the podcast. Yeah, is that this text because it it doesn't have a form that is easy to name? Is forty pages long, and it's the first half of this book. Yeah when I first read the book I'm sure I read the whole thing but it was just my soul in exile with this sense of freedom and and joy and searching that I have gone back to time and time again but before this conversation I read the second half of the book also and the contrast is uh total um so most some of those, so it's probably her very early works are published there so, you know, poems that she wrote at 17. Um, there's like a long pose poem called Feminine Souls, I think, mm-hmm. which has all of the seeds that have sort of bloomed in my soul and exile. Yeah, so yeah. really interesting to see. But then there's a bunch of non-fiction essays. Uh They read, like, newspaper opinion pieces a little bit about women's role in the workplace, women's role in the national question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And then there's an extract from the work that she was very famous for. It's called In the Ruins, which is the text about that first massacre. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the most harrowing things I have ever read. Oh, wow. you now we are used to reading about atrocities, wars in the news all the time. Um, yeah. She writes about this without uh, attempting any sort of neutral objectivity, not neutral, but objectivity. Yeah. She just writes in this very emotional, sentimental style that she has. And obviously her reaction is uh, strongly emotional. And so yeah. that's what that's what she ends up describing, like the emotions of uh going to this school or church where all of the orphan children from the massacre have been sort of barracked.
1: Goodness.
0: And um, like there's one line that just made me shiver where she says, the children knew that they horrified me. Um, because what she's seeing is just so distressing and so raw. It's, Um, And in this documentary that we watched, the commentators, they talk about um, how Yassana had this ability to detach. Interesting. And she lived in, like, as a writer, she was trying to inhabit this Utopia in her, uh, like okay, let me look at the actual. So there's a quote within my soul next that says, "I isolate myself in that one corner of my soul which shelters my novel's universe. In that refuge, there is neither massacre nor deportation nor Bolsheviks nor anything else, but only sunshine, roses, and the eternal song of love, beauty, and grace." Uh, and I think what the the comment in the documentary was that she inhabited this utopian place of hope in her writing and it was her strategy to live in abstraction and it was a sort of necessary detachment that she needed to write both creatively but even write about um, the issues that she was reporting on. It's like they were so horrific that if she hadn't been able to detach she wouldn't be able to function well enough to, to write.
1: That totally makes sense. I actually found the documentary almost too upsetting to watch.
0: Because um, of what happens, what? because of what happens to her, and there's that bit when yeah, they take because out. Because of what happens to her, and because of what they take out her hair at one point. <laughs> Did you see that? I,
1: there, there were parts where I was like, "I'm just going to listen to this." I like, I can't watch this. Yeah. Some of the images were also really like upsetting, yeah. like around the just around the stuff, you know that. Right, that happened. and um, I there is definitely.
0: So uh, yeah. around around the same time that she's writing to, so she's struggling to write My Soul in Exile, there's correspondence where she's talking about this novel that she really wants to write about her relationship to her art. Yeah, And she called it a novel, and because it's taking her so long, um, this is around the time as well that she's becoming a communist. Yeah. And she's still involved with this testimonial work Um, She really struggles to make the space to um, create a space where she can be creatively free. Yeah. And I think that's why what's come out is so compressed. But when I became aware of everything else that she was engaging with at the same time, I realised that my soul in exile, the text, is just this. Tiny split-off space where she allowed her soul to kind of indulge itself in in this way. um, It's the opposite
1: of exile. It's like the soul that is for a moment just allowed to come home,
0: right? And I think that's what she's like. She feels her soul, I think, has been driven into exile by the horrors.
1: Yeah, yeah, the
0: horrific things that are happening to her nation, to her people, and um there's no space in among the various causes that she's absolutely committed to for her soul just to breathe and express itself. Yeah. So that's what she's created in this text. And in that way I, I find it's like it's very unrepresentative of her. Um, and and no wonder there is this sort of existential alienation that runs through it because it's like she can't connect that part of her to her real life.
1: Yeah. 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 I um I'm sorry that I didn't already read the texts that you're talking about the rest of the book. I didn't I didn't read them partly because I was afraid. I was afraid they were going to be too upsetting for me. Cause like again the, the documentary is very well, upsetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm glad that you did because I think that that's a really um it's like a lens that you, that you have to have to read this book kind of completely is knowing that, um, that this joy that she's expressing is um, incredibly hard-earned and that she's defending it, like she's writing it down to defend it against other,
0: yeah.
1: other realities. And it's like hopefulness. It's not just joy; it's also hopefulness that she needs to hold on to in order to to proceed.
0: Yeah, and from this point, she then kind of pivoted to writing social realist novels, um, yeah. which I don't think have been translated. But the consensus seems to be that they are a failure compared to her early works, where she wrote in her own distinctive style. Actually, this. This conversation is making me think about something that Lacan says about exile in relation to writing, which is that um exile is the primary condition for interpretation. So in the psychoanalytic context, I guess what yeah. that means is exile means that feeling of disconnect from oneself, like you're just dis- you you've become disconnected somehow from the more authentic or true self. And the process of interpretation that that feeling triggers is a process of searching your unconscious in an attempt to find a path back to that authentic self. Um, and I feel like what Yes I is doing by putting these meditations into words, what she calls herself, a searching for herself, you know, she said that over yeah. and over again. Uh, I want to examine myself. I'm curious about myself. I'm searching for myself. I feel like what what is actually written in this text is her process of interpreting her own unconscious, yeah, in order to connect back to her, connecting herself to herself, yeah, because she's so split by the, the life that she's living in reality. Uh, and I think that's why this text it doesn't fit the label novel or novella because it's shorter. yeah or, or yeah not a short story. it's to me it's an in, an interpretation uh, it does
1: feel very psychological,
0: yeah, and it's because it's because she's sort of in, interpreting herself, it invites the reader to interpret the text to like read into the text,
1: yeah, yeah. I agree. Um,
0: it 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 triggers a kind of process of introspection in you as the reader. Um, yeah, that's absolutely
1: true. I um, I guess that's why I I was sort of instinctively feeling like her her paintings were probably surrealist portraits, like somewhere between surrealism and portraits, because it feels like that to me. Um, like it both feels like uh, almost like something that she would say in a psychoanalytic session, like where she's sort of seeking herself in a series of encounters or like examining herself and her reactions in a bunch of encounters and also something that is like in conversation with the reader slash listener somehow. Like, does that make sense? Does that seem real to you? Like there's something about it that feels like it's in a psychoanalytic mode.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's literally the way she shuts herself in a room with her paintings. Yeah, and and she talks about literally like using the paintings like the blank screen of the analyst.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Projects her. She she talks about projecting her moods, her thoughts onto this onto the paintings and she says they they do not live without me it's my presence that gives them life yeah and maybe that's why she feels like they don't quite succeed for her maybe she feels like when one day when she sees the painting and it lives on its own then she knows that it's not just something she's using as this kind of transitional object to try and find herself but a yeah. true art and um,
1: I mean, it's fascinating that um, that this person, Yasayan, was able to think of her work that way so artistically when it is also what we would consider like war reporting.
0: Yeah, and this is also a question I had. Like, when she's reflecting on her own art through this metaphor of painting, yeah, does she include these writings? about it's it's interesting she like she wrote i think the first in the ruins the first testimony in an artistic style which um she then i think felt a bit disgusted by afterwards yeah this is sacrilegious i'm not doing it again so by the time the the second genocide happened she or the, the the first genocide but the nineteen fifteen atrocity. Yeah. He um had changed that style completely, but I can't, you know, it's it's not something I, I can't read it myself because it hasn't been translated. So it's hard for me to understand what the what's being described there. Um, but she she seemed to want to strip the artistry out of her writing.
1: Well and she then forswears this form also as Sort of counter revolutionary and bourgeois to have this focus on the self and the um, kind of like um, the individual. She no longer believes that the individual is a mode that that could become unalienated. That it's only about the kind of you know class struggle as she becomes a communist.
0: Yes. And I think her susceptibility to that is something to do with this sense of exile that she, that she does feel. Yeah. Uh, She made such a successful life as somebody who was quite unrooted. Yeah. And yet this longing to root herself, to commit to a cause, to make concrete this utopia of belonging in her mind with this you know, by by uh, by participating in the socialist uh, sorry the communist yeah uh, uh it's it suggests that this sense of exile must have been very strong in her for that desire to have trumped the desire to pursue this feeling of freedom which she has just encapsulated so wonderfully in this in this um short text
1: yeah, I also, it, I I completely agree with you. And I, I think that the amount she must have felt, you know, lastingly, like something has to be more certain than whatever the circumstances were that led to the, the things that she was writing about, the atrocities that she was writing about, that you can imagine why she would want to try something completely different. Does that does that seem right to you? Like I
0: Yeah, I mean something clearly wasn't working for her, something was missing for her. Exactly. Not because of the way she has sort of uh really compartmentalized the different facets of her experience in her different writings. Yeah. I think it's difficult to understand what was really driving her in the in the life decisions she actually made. Yeah. Without looking at her work as a as a whole, um, so I guess on this most recent reread, I went from feeling like Yes, I Am was somebody very familiar to me uh, to someone almost unknowable. Yeah. And and particularly for for me who has so little understanding of the Armenian context, I realised that I have sort of, uh, by being in my hands, this book is suffering, this fate of exile being cut off from its homeland, uh, that that she so uh, mourns in, in the text itself. Um, Mrs. Danielian is like also a really interesting character. I couldn't quite put my finger on what I thought she was supposed to represent. Yeah. But um, Emma at one point looks at her and sees this slightly faded lady who once represented such promise as a poet. But the consensus was in the end that she was worth more than her books. Yeah. And yes, I says, what richness has here remained infertile? And she... She comes up with this image of seeds that have been scattered and so unable to bloom with access to what does she say, the fluid, the vital fluid that would enable them to bloom according to their strength. Yeah. So um this idea that the that the Armenian people are all exiles in the sort of land of their own birth m- among this Constantinople community um because they're cut off from a canon basically that would make yeah. their work. And yeah. I feel like my reading of this work, my appropriation of this work, and, and sort of the, the love that I give to this work is recreating that 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 the uh, excommunication of it from its uh its proper home
1: yeah I um, I share that with you. I definitely, you know I, I have that feeling obviously doing any text that I'm not like very aware of the canon, and the context in this podcast that I'm gonna just be guessing about a lot of things. At the same time, I don't want to only read books, you know, or only like really discuss or or think about books. That come from the quite narrow field that I was educated in. Um, I think that I personally am satisfied with um, with not knowing, with with just awareness that this book has a homeland, you know. um and obviously that this author has been and is um very important to the people that she is speaking for you know um and that some of that is going to just, just be something that i'm excluded from but like i know it's there and i hope that our podcast listeners will you know if they're interested like pursue that farther um because we're we're able to read it to the extent that we're able to but not necessarily beyond that
0: yeah i guess the flip side is that in this particular piece she is trying to create a space that transcends all of this uh you know yeah she... and and that and that has transcended you know she does it's talk like, about um a woman's relationship or work uh, as an artist
1: um, yeah but part of part of what she says about the woman's relationship to to her work is that it is necessary to be in conversation with other people um who are from her her community that that she can't actually just only be an exile. She also has to kind of be supported and seen and taught by other people who understand what she's doing.
0: You know, this this text reminds me of, it's really hard to think of comparisons like you were saying. Yeah. But it reminds me of, have you seen Winter Sleep by Jay Lan? No, no. Uh, I mean, interestingly, he is from Istanbul. He's Uh he's Turkish, different generation, but it feels like there's some kind of connection there. But this film, I think, uh, really captures for me this idea of the isolation of the soul and how you really feel it chafing sometimes, particularly when you're uh, in the confines of your community. Yeah the essential unknowability of each person to every other person and the pain that that causes. Um, I feel like this is this this is the pain that Yes I Am is feeling when she's saying, why does no one see me? It's that, that idea of being unknowable, not being able to show yourself as you feel you really are. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And the, the, the sort of misunderstandings that, that come from that, the way people... To talk to you in a way that you don't You don't recognize yourself in the way they're clearly seeing you. Um, yeah, I think that
1: I think the consensus we're coming up with, the two of us, is that it is both very completely a text of being misunderstood and not perceived correctly, and also a text that is just very successfully expressing exactly who she is and letting us perceive her exactly as the kind of person she is, which is the kind of contradiction that makes uh, for rich and interesting art. It's just very stressful as art about that exact thing, I think.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: All right. That's the end of our episode on Yosayan. Thank you to Sally and to Adam Baer for our music, as well as to everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from listeners. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, so tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter, or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, and goodbye till next month.